This is Academes, a podcast about women in academia, living the dream, or are we? Doctors Michelle Rodriguez and Kate Clancy, thank you for coming to Academes. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, we invited you here because we are really thinking a lot about friendship during the pandemic. I think that a lot of people are feeling socially isolated. A lot of people's normal sources of support are strained. And one thing that's not as much a part of the conversation, but that we think a lot about is friendship and even other social support networks. And so when we read your paper that talks a lot about social support among women of color in the academy, we thought it'd be a really nice deep dive to just thinking about how relationships, informal relationships affect kind of quality of life in the academy. And so we will link to your paper. The paper is titled, There's Realizing, and then there's Realizing, How Social Support can counter gaslighting of women of color scientists. Um, And this is work with Ruby Mendenhall. So first, I thought I would just ask you if you'd maybe summarize the paper for us. Sure. So the paper is basically based on focus groups. I'll look at qualitative data to understand what sort of negative experiences women of color are having in academia, what access or lack of access they have to social support, And what emerged from the paper is that women of color experience those negative interactions, but then are gaslit about it. And their access to social support and the way they can get confirmation or validation of their experiences really makes a difference in how they react to and process those negative experiences that they go through. So I'm mostly a quantitative researcher, but increasingly I've been exposed to qualitative work. And when I was reading your paper, it really brought home some of the power of qualitative work, like reading the quotes from the people was super powerful. And so I wonder, Michelle, if you can talk some about how you got involved in this kind of work, because I don't think it's necessarily your doctoral training to do this kind of work, right? Yeah. So I'm also far more familiar with quantitative data, uh, my dissertation research was looking at studying monkeys. And uh, so basically I was testing a hypothesis called the tend and befriend hypothesis Mm -hmm. that poses that women and female primates uh, evolved uh, a method of coping for stress that involves seeking social support to kind of reduce your stress back to baseline after you experience something bad that's getting your stress levels up. And so I was interested in how monkeys form social networks and form friendships. And so that's always been my interest. But one of the things that happened in grad school is we kept on being like, oh my God, we should study ourselves. <laughs> we joke about like, okay, we need to tend and be friends and go to happy hour. And it just kind of became a joke about tending and befriending in spider monkeys as well as amongst ourselves. And so that got me interested in kind of studying some of those dynamics and how they occur in academia. And so it was kind of that plus 
the experiences of being a woman of color in academia and having those feelings of isolation really kind of made this an interesting topic for me. It's so cool. I love that like what passes for humor in a subfield and what was passing for humor among the grad students. Another thing I noticed in the paper is that you had a section on research positionality where each of the authors kind of described, you know, this is my background and how it relates to this subject matter. So can you explain a little bit about kind of the idea of positionality and why you decided to include that in your paper? Yeah, so it's actually something that was a very late and last addition to the paper. Uh, it took a while to get through review. And when it was close to acceptance, one of the new journal policies is they wanted to have a researcher positionality statement. Huh. And basically it's the idea that we all come to the research from a different point of view and by articulating it and making it clear, especially in a paper where you know you don't always know what's coming from multiple authors and different voices, you can understand the place that each researcher is approaching the work from and how their life experiences are affecting how they approach that work, why they're interested in that topic, how that may affect their interpretations of the work. I feel like this idea is something that is kind of contested. Some people who are trained in scientific models are trained with kind of an objectivity model and to really think about themselves at a remove from their work. And increasingly people are saying, no, like your life experiences, no matter how you feel about it, do bear on the kind of questions you ask and the way you interpret the work and even the kind of teams you bring together. And so I'm personally attracted to this, but now I'm curious, do you think it should become more widespread across fields? Yeah, I think so. It's, I mean, it's one of those things that like last fall was the first I kind of really thought about it and grappled with it. But since then I've been reading about it and the other paper I'm working on is basically it's addressing power imbalances in local foreigner collaborations mm -hmm. where you're dealing with like people coming from very different cultural backgrounds and different languages and different kind of societal positions and something that's really become clear in working through that is we often kind of, we know that those are there, but sometimes you really need to be reminded, oh, that's that's the issue that we're having, especially with things like cross-cultural miscommunications. One thing I wanted to add is something that, you know, Michelle and I are anthropologists and reflexivity is one of the core practices of anthropology. And so um, researcher positionality is one of many different tools we can use to create a more reflexive practice in the work that we do. So we can be continually asking questions about power. Um, obviously, I think uh, feminist science is another lens through which we can be thinking about positionality and power. and. I'm just really glad to see more people use this as one of a couple of different tools. Um, Jenny, da Jenny Davis and I, who's a, an associate professor of anthropology at Illinois as well, and um, is the director of American Indian Studies, she and I wrote a paper recently, like in 2019, I guess, that also sort of tries to reinvoke this call for ref reflexivity across the sciences more broadly, because just as you said, I think we're often encouraged to we're often encouraged to ignore certain parts of our lived experiences rather than bring them to the fore. 
And I would say in particular as a white person, I don't know, I need to be reminded or I need to be reflective about the ways in which my, um, my lived experience and my privilege might mean that I'm ignorant of certain lived experiences. And so I think um, sometimes these positionalities are leveraged more against people of color. And historically in anthropology, that's what's been done is like, you need to acknowledge that you're going and doing work with your own people as though that's worse than white people going and studying brown <laughs> people. Um, but I, I, what I love about it is that it positionality statements kind of end up bringing the, bringing privileges to the fore more instead. So it sort of inverts that, um, that earlier call to reflexivity. Do you have any examples of where you feel like having that framework improved or changed your work? Like having the free, like using positionality mm-hmm. and being explicit about it. It's probably hard as an anthropologist to separate that out from everything you do. I think for me, it's just the more, as I've increased my intentionality about this, I think that it's helped me. I don't think it makes anybody perfect. Right. Um, and I think we're always learning and growing as scholars and people, but um, I think the more that we, uh, bring in our lived experience, I think that's only a good thing as opposed to, um, I think the like fake objectivism is pretending certain things aren't there. Um, whereas I think positionality is sort of inviting them in and saying, well, let's live with all this stuff together. And it actually allows for clarity because then now I know where that little bias is coming from, or that little feeling is coming from. So I would say it just sort of colors everything that I'm doing, but I don't know, Michelle, if you have more to add. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that sometimes intentionally or unintentionally, we are aware of, but we're, I think it, when you articulate it, I think it makes you reflect a little bit more. And uh, in the other paper I'm working on, it's kind of the goal is just to get people to take that step of considering that and bring that to their collaborations with greater awareness of it. This makes me think about something in your paper. The very second sentence of your paper was talking about initiatives that focus on improving the representation of women in science, because the paper we're talking about really focuses on women in science specifically. And so the second paper says that these initiatives that focus on improving the representation of women in science often end up improving circumstances only for white women. And you have some citations. Um, And so I think a lot of people are thinking about diversity and inclusion and really trying to make it intersectional right now. And so I would love to know if you could talk more about how this plays out, how sometimes efforts to improve diversity um, can actually play out in a way that leaves out some groups that they're actually trying to help. Yeah, so I think basically if you try and just tackle one axis alone, you're, you're taking care of of one barrier or trying to address it. And if you're not careful to consider the other ones, then the other biases are still gonna be in action. And thus it's just gonna end up benefiting white women if you're just like, we just need more women and we're only gonna focus on women as a whole. (laughs) And so I think in order to really increase representation, we need to be mindful of the way that these different intersecting factors work. It's easier to tackle one thing at a time or two things at a time. And I think one of the challenges of kind of understanding what an intersectional lens brings is it just makes things a lot more complicated and thus requires more work to think about how to thoughtfully fix. And I think in a lot of, okay, we want to fix this problem. There's 
often you take the simplest, easiest route rather than try and tackle the hard stuff. I feel like this also brings to mind another paper that Michelle and I wrote that Michelle was first author on, so I want you to say more about it than me, which is the commissioned paper that we wrote for the National Academies of Science and Engineering, Science, Engineering and Medicine, um, where we talk about representation issues and this concept that there's a leaky pipeline in the sciences. And I think when you start from the model that the pipeline is what's leaky, not from the model that the system harms people and kicks them out and hurts them in all sorts of ways, then you try to fix the pipeline. And if you're trying to fix the pipeline and you identify women, then it's the most privileged group among that class that are going to benefit the most because of their proximity to whiteness, their proximity to men, their proximity, you know what I mean? Um, and so I think, uh, again, part of the issue is that when we frame things around diversity as opposed to around justice, then we end up trying to count heads and then, you know, we, we erase a lot of those axes of difference um, that, that, get, that we, we might have actually supported better if we had paid more attention to the harm that's being caused in the existing structure. But Michelle, I don't know if you want to say more to that. Yeah, so I think one thing that we can do is think about the other analogy that we use to kind of replace the leaky pipeline, which is the gauntlet. Hmm. And so if you think of a gauntlet in terms of obstacles and barriers that you have to find ways to circumvent or overcome, it allows you to visualize that for white women, there's these gender-based uh, kind of obstacles, but for women of color, you also have these racial or ethnic barriers. And for any kind of marginalized identity, you're going to have barriers related to that identity or to those identities intersecting. So then it becomes a, not a question of how do we patch up the holes or force people through, but what are those obstacles? What are those barriers? How can we find ways to take them out or clear easier paths through them? Thanks for talking about that work. Um, and so a big takeaway from your work is that social support that's validating, and that's a word I'm using, and you could tell me if that's the right word, is really helpful for women of color faculty in STEM because it helps them identify these experiences and kind of name them as experiences that are external to them and not internalize them or get stuck trying to understand what was this and how do I interpret this. Um, did this finding surprise you? Is that something you had a hypothesis about or did it really just emerge unexpectedly? I think in a way it's not surprising at all, but it wasn't something I expected or looked for. It's, I, I was thinking of social support more in terms of how does it emotionally make you feel better, but not the mechanisms of why or how it was making you feel better. And I think one of the things that I guess did surprise me a little though I shouldn't be surprised, is the amount of participants that kept on bringing up these feelings of uncertainty of like, I think this is because of this, but I'm not sure. And I'm not sure if it's me or it's, I think it's because I'm a woman of color, but I don't know if it's because of gender or race or rank. And I think in a way for me, I found that validating in mm -hmm. a in the process of there's realizing and realizing, 
I definitely had layers of realizing and recognizing those experiences that I hadn't consciously classified the same way and recognize, oh, wait, I have that all the time. I thought that was just me being insecure. Hmm. I think it's interesting because I think there's a lot of different ways I think about coping as a Black woman in the academy. And one coping mechanism is just to like put it aside to just try to ignore it to separate from it to not think about it too much and just like do my thing you know and so I think that people really struggle I think people even in communities of color have really different perspectives on the best way to cope with these kind of environments even if we all recognize okay this environment's kind of hostile there's really different ways and so some people really lean into activism and really trying to like speak truth to power. And some people are like, let me just build my own thing. Let me kind of keep my distance from that um, and separate. And I think those are kind of two examples of different coping styles. And I don't know if that came up at all in your research. I feel like, Michelle, I don't I don't know if you have thoughts about this. The first thing that comes to mind for me are, um, you know, we were um, part of the reason that we wanted to look at women of color science faculty is one of the questions we had about social support was what's it like being an only Mm -hmm. versus what's it like being part of, you know, at least having a couple of people with similar lived experiences to you in, in your department. And so when you hit the faculty level in STEM, the number of women of color is, you know, embarrassingly, disgustingly small. And so that's where we thought we would probably see a little of that variation of someone who's like, yeah, there's two of us or three of us versus I'm the only one. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of the things, even even for the folks who had a couple of people versus people who had nobody, um, isolation really was, I think, a major part of the experience. Um, the way I talk about it when I give talks about this is I talk about, especially as a white woman, I do have plenty of people to look around at, right? Like I'm, even though there are, so, of course, fewer women, white women in STEM, there's still way more white women in STEM than many other groups. And so in a faculty meeting, in the before times when we were all looking at each other, <laughs> not on a screen, but in a room, in a conference room, right? Um, you could be, you could have one of those moments where someone says something messed up. I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah, and you have that moment where you have to fix your face. But before you fix your face, you look at one of your buddies. Yeah. And you look at somebody and you go, did you hear that? Like, you know, now we use Zoom chat. (laughs) (laughs) But like then you would look at somebody and you would look for that moment. And like, so if I would hear something sexist, I would look to another woman to be like, did I just hear what I thought I heard? Mm -hmm. So I trade glances with somebody. And I think... You know, in terms of these different coping mechanisms of doing my own thing, seeking, like doing something activist, trying to, you know, these different ways of coping. um, I think one of the things that was the most heartbreaking is there weren't a lot of mechanisms, period. Yeah. Right. Because there were so infrequently the appropriate, um, like personal or infrastructure support to build what they wanted to build. And so people told stories of you know, never having the right people to write grants with, never being added to grants, like the number of men I know who just get thrown on grants, you know, (laughs) uh, and like just get thrown sub awards, Um, you know, like those, those kinds of that, that natural networking that happens, that's just handed to a lot of men and white men in particular. Um, And so I think because that's just completely taken out of the equation, um, the, you know, there's a lot, there's, there's sort of, it's harder to find, to figure out what one might want to build. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, that resonates and it resonates with one of your findings because a lot of the social support, it wasn't necessarily colleagues. Sometimes it could be a colleague, but sometimes it was students. Sometimes it was just friends, like your friend network far away. Like I think about my like friend, academic friend chat. Um, and so it really maybe speaks to the fact that people have to really reach out to get that social support because it's not at their work setting. It's interesting. And I, that image of, I think about situations where maybe I'm in a room and I don't even bother to try to look to somebody to be like, did you hear that? Because it's the kind of thing where I'm like, there's probably nobody in this room that like sees it. And that is a difference. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this also brings up like a lot of really relevant movement that's happening in biomedical science specifically. So like the NIH, which is the biggest government funder of biomedical research, is trying a new model to increase racial ethnic diversity in the scientific workforce, especially recognizing how underrepresented black scientists are, for instance, um, and native scientists. Um, And before a lot of the diversity efforts were about, you know, sponsoring individual trainees, like you get a K award, you get, you know, a supplement. And so they're trying this new first initiative uh, where well-resourced institutions hire like 10 faculty at a time, a cohort model, and, you know, even clustered within areas. And they want like at least three people per cluster. So it's not just you hire 10 people and they're all in different parts of campus. And so that seems to really fit with an emerging science about the importance of like social networks. I don't know what you think about initiatives like that. I think it's a great idea. I think part of the kind of solution of, oh, we'll diversify by hiring someone ends up putting such a emotional burden and it becomes a like, it's not just you're hired to do your work, it's you're hired to do all these different things and fix all the problems and mentor all the people that there might be a chance of coming up behind you if you survive that. Yeah. But in, I mean, I think, I think of academia in kind of, this sounds a little silly, but the same way that I think of how spider monkeys, how female spider monkeys have to immigrate to new community and integrate into a new place. And that's something I think about every time I have had to move to a different institution, which has been a lot. And it's really hard to make those connections and especially hard to find those sort of women of color support networks when there's so few. So I think being hired together really would make a difference and mm-hmm. being able to have pre-existing kind of people that you could go to and form those networks. Um, I know when I was a visiting professor for a year, uh, few years ago now, uh, I was hired with another VAP who was a Latina woman. And so we both, we both ended up kind of getting there late after new faculty orientation had happened and kind of starting out in a small department. And we were just kind of like, for that year, our social support network. And I moved there alone. She had moved without her husband. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a different experience than the other times where I'm kind of like, it's just me. No one else came in at the same time as me. And it really makes a difference. We want to hear from you. What do you think of this episode? Tell us about your experience as an academe. You can reach us on Twitter at academespodcast, by email at academespodcast at gmail.com, or please leave us a voicemail at 919 666 7301.
And if you like what you hear, rate us on your favorite podcast app. It'll help people find us. Did you have any thoughts about initiatives like the cohort model in first, Kate? The only thing I'd add is just that this is something that I have been reading about and uh, for many years now, and that in particular, the place that I first heard about this idea of cohort hiring was from other women of color. The first place mm. I remember reading it was there was a report back from an astronomy, con- a conference about women of color in astronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, I can try to find it for your show notes, but I remember Jedida Isler and I think possibly Dara Norman were some of the co-authors of this uh, workshop report. And one of their main recommendations was hiring cohorts of women of color. Mm. And ever since then, that's been something that I like that I've, I've put, I've cited that and put it in like everything I've done since, because it's just so obvious uh, once you hear it, you know? That's awesome. Okay. Um, another part of your paper really talked about gaslighting and hollow messages of inclusion. And again, this feels so timely. I feel like a lot of us, especially after George Floyd's murder and a lot of attention to uh, racial equity and racial injustice, there were a lot of messages of inclusion that a lot of institutions and people put out. And so you have a quote in your paper and you say, hollow messages of inclusion counter participants' experiences and intensified feelings of marginalization. And that like super resonated with me. And so I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that in general from your research and if um, kind of the events of the past year have changed or even deepened the way you feel about that finding. Yeah, I think it's it's something that definitely came across in those focus groups that it, it there, there was the quote, they, they just want to do things. And it's about a lot of times wanting to find a solution leads to let's put a bandaid on it or let's just let's just say we have an inclusive environment and maybe that will make it so. <laughs> and when it's done in a way that's not incorporating the concerns of people of color and is kind of coming at a top down let's let's make it look really nice and pretty and put pictures up here and think we've solved it then that just kind of deepens the disconnect between experiences and what you're being told your experience is. And so it's, I think, why it's so gaslighting is just because it's it's not even, oh, they don't realize it's, they don't want to hear it. They just want to create a narrative that will make themselves feel better. Yeah. I feel like for me, I had a moment where there's an organization I'm affiliated with that was drafting a statement. And the first draft of the statement was like, we don't condone racism in any form. And this infuriated me. And I'm sure the people who wrote it are like, why are you so mad? I'm like, that's not true. Like this organization isn't like terrible, but there's racism in this organization. Like I've experienced racism in this organization. A lot of people have. And like, we say we're actively trying to improve. So these things are incompatible to say we're actively trying to improve, but also we're already at the point where like, we don't condone racism and there's no racism here. Like, I feel like those things don't go together. You can't say we're trying to improve if you say you've already arrived. And it really like incensed me. And I'm like, this is a lie. And I like was like, I hate this statement. And I'm sure, I don't know how they reacted, but I think they were really surprised by it. And so it does make me feel like, oh, there's such a disconnect where they can put out the statement that they think is great and they think they're doing the right thing. And I find it so 
frustrating and gaslighting and discouraging. Mm-hmm. So that's not really a question, but just an observation. And when I read that in your paper, it really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. My um, So my university just released a statement yesterday about scholarly contributions in COVID, where one of the first sentences was, um, we recognize that women and people of color have had an especially hard time managing the pandemic. And later on, it talks about how uh, department heads should be in conversation with faculty to find out if they are achieving their desired scholarly targets and to help them uh, I forget what it was like, re reinvigorate their productivity. And then later in the, and later in that same statement, it says something like, uh, basically like a reminder of like, don't you forget, you'd better be working hard for us. One of the last statements was something like, part of your job is to do your job. Don't forget, you have to be producing right now. It was like, the, the, the language was so, um, you know, this problem is internal, right? Yeah. You you are having problems managing the pandemic as opposed to we recognize the structural inequities that are making it so that so many of so many people of different of these different identity groups that we've decided to identify in this one statement <laughs> um, are having a hard, you know, that you're having a hard time because of us. <laughs> you know, and that was the thing that I felt like was really missing was any acknowledgement that like, the fact that you told us a year ago, go, 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 don't stop. Yeah. And it's a pandemic, yeah. you know, like that, that kind of gaslighting, like from, from the top down, right? These kinds of statements are, are gaslighting in a way. They're trying to make us feel as though the problem is internal. And, and I'm even saying that as a white woman, right? And yeah. I would say like, and I would say that problem is compounded with, with additional lived experiences through different axes of oppression within these structures. I don't know, man. <laughs> I know some people who work in communications at universities and they, who do a lot of massaging of official statements and they're like, look, I made this better. This was actually worse before, which is kind of shocking and I don't even want to know what their first drafts look like. Anyway, okay. Um, so Kate, my next question is for you. I saw in the paper um, that Michelle didn't have previous experience conducting these kind of interviews and focus groups, but you did. And so it was explicit in the paper that you led the first couple focus groups and then uh, Michelle led the rest. I love the fact that there was so much like detail about process in this paper. And so can you tell us more about how you land on that strategy and how that reflects your mentoring philosophy? To be honest, there isn't too much more to say about it than, than what appears in the paper. Um, because I think, especially, again, this sort of gets back to the positionality thing. As a, as a white person, I didn't know that it made sense for me to be leading all of these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, and yet at the same time, I, you know, I've run a lot of focus groups. And so, you know, just the idea was I run a couple in order to just sort of model some of the asking some of the listening some of the waiting you know there's just sort of some natural like things that you just like with any skill set there's sort of things that you learn from from seeing it done and from participating um and so i i knew it was probably important for me to model that a little bit but it also was frankly more important that michelle be in front of uh participants and so that was really what motivated it i don't um yeah that's that's pretty much it is there anything you want to say about it, Michelle? Like, how did you feel about taking on this kind of project where you were gaining a new skill and putting it into practice? Yeah, I think going into it, the, this was my first time 
doing qualitative research. And, you know, sometimes in anthro departments, you can get qualitative training, grad students can take entire classes in it. But because I was focused on kind of the more quantitative uh, end of things, I never had those experiences. So, you know, things like just knowing when you should kind of stick to the questions versus follow the tangents that are emerging, I think was one of the things I was really concerned about kind of figuring out. And I mean, it's just one of those things that you, you get as you learn and as you observe. So I just wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing. So kind of observing first was more helpful to know what I was doing. I think that probably caught my attention because as a quantitative researcher who wants to do more mixed methods work, I'm very intimidated by the idea of doing qualitative work myself. And I'm like, I need to take all the classes. I need to do all the things. And I've had people say, like, sometimes you just have to start doing something and get some mentor training and that can be a way to do it. But I think a lot of academics are perfectionists and we want to learn all the things and that can stop us sometimes from doing work that could potentially be powerful. So I really love that you all decided to jump in with this and that um, you produce this work that I really enjoyed reading. So I appreciate that. And I feel like, you know, your podcasting is a lot of great experience towards qualitative research, because I'm sure you've learned, like the two biggest things that I feel like I've picked up from qualitative work are you have to prepare like 10 times as long as the actual length of whatever the interview is a lot of times, less so maybe for these focus groups, but for other interviews I've done, I feel like my the preparation I have to do going into it is much greater than the amount of time I'm spending with a participant. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is the frequency with which, one, you wanna let things go a little, um, and two, that um, that's for some people you need to like follow up by asking, can you give me a specific example of that? Because sometimes people want to just answer in a yes, no way. And, and you need to draw that out. Um, and so a lot of it is about just relaxing into it and just wondering like, okay, if this was my grandmother and I wanted to get her life story, what would I follow up with? How would I get her to tell me more? No, I want to hear about that story, not just generally speaking and that kind of stuff, which again, you naturally do by podcasting. Okay, Academes listeners, you're getting a free course in qualitative research methods. You're welcome. <laughs> um, and Kate, I also wanted to ask you, um, just how do you support your mentees and colleagues of color? And what are things that have changed over time and how you think about providing support? Um, I think it's an ongoing process. I think that, um, I, you know, I... I think, you know, like I'm also, I do a lot of research in sexual harassment and okay. I would say one of the biggest things that I've learned from working with a lot of folks with sexual, like in the field of sexual harassment and in restorative justice is that in general, the people who've been harmed are the people you want to center. Yeah. And so, um, typically the, the two things that I try to do the most are just sort of try to, I, I just try to return to what do you need or how can I help? Um, and think about what are the actual material benefits that friends like that I might be able to provide. But honestly, like increasingly, like my job is actually getting out of the way. <laughs> um, so that's why I feel like I don't have a ton to say here because I feel like most of my process is learning to shut up. I mean, that's a process. Some people need to learn that. <laughs> uh, Michelle, I don't know if you have any reflections on examples of really good mentorship and collegiality and examples where you feel like there is more growth that needs to happen? Yeah, I think 
part of kind of learning to be a good mentor is recognizing that every relationship is different and people approach it in different ways and need different things. And I think a lot of kind of the traditional model that people sometimes think is, and especially I think where problems occur is the assumption that you're training someone that is just like you to be your replacement. And I mean, I think about in grad school, we talk about kind of that golden boy phenomenon where like certain male professors really picked out a male student that they decided was their like, their mini me, you know, mm -hmm. and they put all their hopes in thus preferential treatment into this person thinking that they were a younger version of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people fall into that and part of being a good mentor to people from different backgrounds and having different experiences is just recognizing that they're not going to be you and they're not going to be your mini me or following the same trajectory of you and need different things. And I think when you are able to approach relationships in those individual ways, it does help. Yeah. One other thing that comes to mind from your paper was a brief discussion about some common behaviors of white allies at this research intensive university. And you kind of talked about three different kind of behaviors. And one is surface allyship, where people kind of know the language and, you know, they're, they're saying they're allies. Another is kind of paternalistic behavior, which is probably the opposite of the getting out of the way and, you know, asking what people need. And you said well, those things weren't helpful, but what was helpful is kind of genuine allyship. And you gave an example of really kind of being a bystander and calling something out. And I think it gets back to Kate, that idea of being in the room and something ridiculous gets said. Um, and, you know, somebody saying, even though this isn't directed at me, I'm going to speak up and say something. And in the paper, you say that kind of uh, kind of bystander behavior was super helpful, but really rare. <laughs> so I don't know if you had any more thoughts about that. Well, something that I feel I've had a lot of conversations about recently is the fact that when that happens, there's often after the fact, someone then will be like, oh, you know, I'm glad you, you, the marginalized person said something or, oh, I'm sorry you went through that. And uh, it happens in social media a lot too, where like, I think I've been in the experience where senior people will like not say something publicly, but then DM support or something like that, you know? And I think there's often this, tendency in academia that you should kind of keep your step off your lip and stay silent and then quietly say something so people know that you realized it but it mm -hmm. it doesn't change the dynamic it just the silence is taken as complicity yeah I really thank you for making so much of this explicit it really does show I don't know. I think your paper provided social support for me. Um, so thanks. Our last question is a question we ask all of our guests. We ask, is being a woman in academia a dream, a game, or a scam? Would either of you like to offer an opinion? I would say it can probably be all three. I think you have to treat it as a game. <laughs> and it's a scam if you're not playing the game. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, I was I was going to answer something similar. I feel like it's all three. I definitely have moments where I'm just like jamming on a paper and and I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, I am I am actually living the dream. Like I am doing the thing that I enjoy doing, right?" And I feel like we also um like picked up on moments of that in the in the paper too, right? Like yeah. those moments of just being in flow and like loving your work. And then it's that moment of sexism or racism or gendered racism, right? That like pulls you out of it. Um, and so, you know, I, I live for those dream moments. <laughs> but uh, when I look at how casualized the workforce increasingly is, and when I look at um, the ways in which my personal values are not in line with the metrics that my campus uses to quantify success and promotion metrics and things like that, uh, then it does feel very scammy. <laughs> um, and it feels, and, it, and, and it's frustrating that, you know, I think it can be frustrating to feel like you don't, um, you don't wanna play the game because it's not consistent with your values, but if you don't play it at least a little bit, then you don't get to stay. <laughs> and I think that that's, uh, I think in a lot of ways, that's like the ultimate heartbreak of academia, right? Is that like you can, um, in order to get those dream moments, you have to find ways to not give up. Like, I don't, I think you can do it without like giving up values, but do you have to like comply with certain things or do you have to like do quantitative like quantitative things in terms of checking boxes of a certain number of papers or whatever. Yeah, you have to do that to stay, and that's um, you know until we until we can really do a better job deconstructing the particular metric system, the, the metrics that we have, um, that's going to continue to be a problem. Thank you. I have loved talking to you. Thank you for sharing your work and thank you for sharing your voices in this recording. And just have a great afternoon. You too. Thank you so much. Academes was produced by Sarah Birkin, Mara Bookbinder, and me, Whitney Robinson. Miriam Elk edits and provides administrative support for the podcast. Our artwork is by Melissa Hudgens at Leafy Greens Design, and we receive funding from listeners like you. Thank you.